Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. I'm your host, Mike Wong. Every summer, one of my favorite things happens. It's a book club hosted by my former PhD advisor at Caltech. The purpose of this reading group is to learn about something completely new together. We choose a book or two, sometimes supplementing these with relevant papers or lectures, but really the only requirement for our reading materials is that no one is allowed to be an expert in that subject. Thus, the discussions are open to anyone who's willing to do the reading, from my professor's postdocs and graduate students, to his undergraduate and even high school interns, to alumni who just don't quite know how to say goodbye. <laughs> That's me. I used to coordinate this group when I was a senior graduate student at Caltech. Since I left, my good friend and colleague Dr. Stuart Bartlett has been at the helm. This year, Stuart chose The Ascent of Information by Caleb Scharf, the Director of Astrobiology at Columbia University. Without spoiling too much yet, I'll just say the more I read in this book, the more I realized that if I could get Caleb on Strange New Worlds, it would make an absolutely fascinating episode. So I reached out to Caleb, not knowing if he even knew what Star Trek was. Turns out he's a big fan. And he said, yes. So today we have not only Caleb Scharf, the author of The Ascent of Information, but also the one and only Stuart Bartlett with us to discuss how and why information rules our world, both in Star Trek and in reality. Just a note before we dive into the conversation, reading Caleb's book is definitely not a prerequisite to enjoying this episode. We are going to thoroughly explain the concepts that we talk about. But I will tell you now that there is so much great stuff in The Ascent of Information that we can't possibly cover it all here. And you really should go get this book from your local bookstore or library if you haven't done so already. And with that, engage. Caleb Scharf, welcome aboard Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Thank you so much. Great to be here. And also joining us today over subspace communications is mm -hmm. Dr. Stuart Bartlett. Stuart, welcome back. Oh, thank you. It's great to be here once again. <laughs> Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this discussion that we're about to have about Caleb's new book, The Ascent of Information, and the intersection between the concepts in that book and the science fiction themes that we see in Star Trek. But before we dive into the meat of things, Caleb, I like to start by asking all of my guests about their relationship to Star Trek. So if you don't mind sharing, what was your first contact with Star Trek and what has it meant to you? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I half guessed that you might ask something. <laughs> so I was trawling my memory. And actually, you know, what I realized, so when I was growing up, I grew up in England back in the, the dawn of time. You know, we'd barely gotten past uh, candles and <laughs> gas lights. Um, but my family, my parents were academics. They were art historians. And so television was kind of this thing that they were a little wary of. But we did have a TV. And um, we had a sort of small black and white TV. And one of the few things that my academic parents would let me watch as a, as a sort of four-year-old, five-year-old was Star Trek, which had just basically just happened. And so some of my earliest memories are hiding behind the, the couch, hiding behind the sofa because, you know, there was a monster or, you know, someone was in peril. And um, actually, so I go way back with, I go back to the beginning. Oh my goodness, I'm so old. Um, but, it, but it made a huge impression on me. And it continues to, because I think among all the, the various sci-fi franchises, for me, Star Trek does the best at balancing sort of the intellectual with the, the exciting and the action-oriented stuff and the philosophical 
it's always felt like a philosophical show. It, it, it captures some of the wonder. So, so I go back way back with, with Star Trek. I wouldn't call myself a Trekkie, but it was there early in my life. I'm sure it had an influence on my career decisions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, same here. And I definitely remember as a kid hiding uh, from you know certain aliens that looked scary, get, getting very freaked out by the Borg, but now mm -hmm. as an adult, really loving the Borg as a concept and as a villain in Star Trek, we'll definitely talk about that a lot in the hour to come. But uh, Stuart, you know, you've already answered this question on a previous podcast, but maybe just for our new listeners who haven't heard your voice yet, could you just remind us about your Star Trek fandom? Sure. It was similar to Caleb's experience, actually very similar. And um, in my case, Myself and my brother were not allowed video games as kids. But again, we were allowed to watch um, Star Trek. And um, I think for me, the, um, the real memories are with Star Trek Voyager. It was just such an such a inspiring theme as a child to imagine that you're so far away, stranded, kind of alone, but you have your extended family with you and you go on all these kinds of adventures. and I'm sure it, it had a huge influence on my career choices and life choices. So I can, I can watch those episodes over and over again and never get tired of them. You know, like any good work of art, you get more out of it, the more you sort of experience it. And especially as I've, the more I've sort of studied the living world, the more poignant a lot of the themes in Star Trek become. And, and as time goes on, my respect for the writers only, only grows. And, you know, every time I think, my man, how, how did these people have such an insightful sort of forward vision of, of these concepts? I definitely have great memories of Star Trek Voyager as well. And when I sit down to watch a Voyager episode these days, it's like I'm being surrounded by old friends. It's really great. So here's a fun question for both of you. If you could hire one person from all of Star Trek to join your research team, who would it be <laughs> and why? Oh, well. <laughs> that's quite a tough but you know for me it comes down to would i want to have fun or would i want to get stuff done <laughs> are they mutually exclusive <laughs> no that's what i'm trying to think is whether you could have both both those so for fun would it be q then <laughs> that would be extreme fun <laughs> That, yeah, I, I'm not sure how much, gen right, if you can rewrite the laws of physics at whim, then perhaps one's research would take a bit of a hit. <laughs> or maybe not. You could just say, okay, I'd like the universe to be this way. And it would be. So it would yeah, be have, have, paper writing, very easy. Have your thought experiments become reality immediately. <laughs> mm. I think I, I'm torn between seven of nine. I mean, Seven of Nine, of course, is just such a, an amazing character in so many ways. And um, I would want to work with her for, you know, all of her incredible understanding and the knowledge that she got from the Borg, but then also her experience later. But I think I would also love to collaborate with the EMH, with um, the Doctor from Voyager. I mean, <laughs> doing Origin of Life experiments with him would be amazing. <laughs> Yeah. Also, also the sort of interaction with an entity that is figuring itself out to some extent, sort of emergent intelligence. Mm. I felt that was always a theme there. And that, yeah, it'd be like having a very, very articulate child, a very knowledgeable, articulate child to work with. And, and we always say, you know, children have the best insights. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I learned so much by getting up in front of a classroom of students and hearing their ideas and their questions and thinking, wow, I never thought to even ask that. Yeah. Well, let's dive into the book now. Uh, the Ascent of Information is essentially all about the data that we produce and how that information feeds back on us and influences our lives. And along the way, uh, Caleb, you coined a new term, the data ohm, and we're going to be using that word a lot this hour. So let's begin with a definition. Caleb, what is the data ohm? Yeah, so the way I use this word, the data ohm, is a shorthand for all of the information that we as a species generate, propagate, maintain, and utilize in 
sort of carry through time with us, yet it's not encoded in our genes. In that sense, it's external to our genetic core. It could be fleeting thoughts in the neurochemical signals in our brain, but it's in our books, it's in the bits of electronic data around us, but it's also in the, the informational structures that we build really in support of all of this external information. So even the room that you're sitting in or the library down the street or the, the road that you, you walk or bike along, I would consider at some level all of that to be part of the data home. And it feels appropriate to give it this name because there's really no other species on the planet that does anything quite like that. There are species that certainly imprint themselves on the world. Arguably all species do that to some extent, but to have explicit information encoded in the external world feels like it deserves a name. And so it's the data own kind of like a genome or a microbiome, it's that sort of concept. And as one of your first examples of the data ohm in action, you write about how Shakespeare's words have persisted over many generations. And there's a particularly beautiful passage in your book describing what went through your mind as you stood before William Shakespeare's grave. Um, do you think I could get you to read that passage for us? You can indeed, and I'm just so happy to have the book here turned to the right page. So let me let me give that a shot. Um, yeah, as you say, this this is a part of the beginning of the book, and it's a reflection on on something that actually happened. Although you know, I may have embellished it a little bit for the book, uh, a visit to Stratford upon Avon in England, which is both the birthplace and place of death of, of William Shakespeare, and after a very long day being a tourist, winding up, as you say, in front of his grave and his epitaph, which is a very wonderful epitaph. I encourage people to go and look that up. Um, so let me read this short bit. Standing there, feeling slightly soiled from the day, I'm struck by the sheer absurdity of it all. This one human, William Shakespeare, wrote a bunch of stuff some 400 years ago, and that stuff has radiated outward in space and time, like a brilliant pulse of light spreading into the cosmos. His words have been reproduced and copied on an astronomical scale. Those words have prompted new words, writings of critics, of fans, of historians, of schoolroom essayists, and of me as I think these thoughts and craft the phrases written here. Although the bard himself was definitely not immortal, a fact his grave clearly testifies to, his ideas and creations might be. Yet the conceptions and stories that William Shakespeare converted into written matter never existed inside him as anything more than synaptic connections and electrochemical pulses. His information was not encoded in his DNA. He could not biologically bequeath it to all his descendants. There were no heritable genes for his 37 plays. All of that information is still here though, outliving him and influencing our lives all this distance down the human timeline. As I flex my tired feet, I'm acutely aware that on this ordinary day in the 21st century, my actions can be directly attributed to Shakespeare's informational remains, his data from hundreds of years ago. There you are. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for that reading, Caleb. I remember when I read that passage for the first time, I had the impulse to drop the book and pull out my phone and text Stuart, wow, mm -hmm. this guy is a really good <laughs> writer. <laughs> so yeah, your words are having an effect on the data ohm as well. <laughs> um, so you know, Shakespeare's work appears all over Star Trek. Captain Picard still reads his books. Klingons quote his plays. Denizens of Deep Space Nine debate his themes. Star Trek clearly predicts that Shakespeare's influence will continue to proliferate through space and time. And at the same time, Star Trek, the franchise, the storytelling vehicle that we all love, is also a wildly successful part of our data ohm. And today, with numerous shows in production, Star Trek is alive, so to speak, more so than it's ever been in its 55-year history. So this question is for both of you. Um, what do you think makes a piece of information 
tenacious? Why do some ideas like Shakespeare's or Star Trek entrench themselves in our data ohm while so many others, like a lot of my ideas, seemingly evaporate into oblivion? <laughs> I think it's a wonderful question. Um, and, you know, as you were asking it, it made me think back to some, some stuff that wrote about in the book, but I'll say about now, you know, so as to do with, you know, information clearly has different meaning to us. I mean, not all information is the same. And that actually forms a part of a much deeper set of ideas that are sort of bubbling away at the frontier of investigation into things like the nature of life, the integration of life with its environment and so on, to do with, to use the technical terms, the difference between semantic information and syntactic information. So the sort of information that, you know, is well, in data that, you know, doesn't necessarily transfer to anything we readily can make use of. Uh, I'm putting it very crudely. And that would be sort of syntactic information or, or the way we talk about, you know, you can compress a file by a certain amount. That's really talking about its syntactic properties, right? It doesn't really care about the contents of an electronic file. It's more about its compressibility in some austere fashion. Whereas semantic information is about meaning. It's about knowledge. And so when you're talking about you know, Star Trek, much like Shakespeare, one wonders, you know, we clearly find meaning in it at an emotional level, but also perhaps meaning that helps guide us in our, in our lives in some way, um, insight to the human condition, our fantasies about being space explorers. It, it makes scientists like Stuart and me and you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so there may be evolutionary reasons to support that kind of contribution to the data. Star Trek may be a Darwinian success not for it, just for its own sake, but for the sake of the people who get something from it, you know, right? If it stimulates us to be more inventive and creative and nice to each other, perhaps that, you know, helps our species. So, you know, I'm going kind of deep into it. Maybe Stuart will push back on some of this. <laughs> but, you know, there are deep connections there to the fundamental nature of information, what it actually means. I completely agree that we do have this sort of two-pronged understanding of information and certainly you know the syntactic side of things does seem to have been well conceptualized and then the semantic side we're still we're still sort of struggling with and it crosses many disciplines ai researchers have been studying the nature of semantic information for for many decades and the philosophers are interested there's the, the astrobiologists theoretical physicists and thermodynamicists so this is a very interesting and enigmatic sort of flow from syntactic to semantic. Uh, and I think one of the things that makes it so mysterious is the context dependence. And this, this is a theme that came up in the book many times, the fact that a given quantity of information with like a fixed syntactic information content of so many bits could have like a very low semantic value. And it might hold that low semantic value for thousands of years or even millions of years. And then at some point, because of an unpredictable change in the context. Suddenly, while the syntactic content has stayed the same, the semantic value has suddenly changed significantly. And when we look back at the history of life and its evolution with themes like uh, exaptation, where adaptations that evolved for one context and might have been sort of modestly useful or, or even neutral for a long time, under a change of context can suddenly be extremely valuable. So that, that is an interesting sort of frontier of uh, information theory and um, thermodynamics. So measuring semantic information, people tend to attempt to quantify things like the predictive power, the causal power. So, you know, how much is a given quantity of information gonna extend its reach into the future by conferring predictive abilities on uh, whatever agents are in, in possession of, of that information. So, so yeah, I think the answer, which is still in its infancy, will be related to the original concepts of how much a given quantity of information is surprising and how much it's compressible, but then also the degree to which it has, it can have causal influence on the wider system and, and, and the degree to which it confers predictive power on, on, on the agents which are processing the information. 
Thank you both for your thoughts on the meaning of meaning. Um, I really love this idea that the meaning comes um, very much from the context. And maybe that's one of the reasons why Star Trek has been so successful is that it exists in a societal context and is able to speak to the concerns of society at the time that it is being aired. And, uh, and maybe that's responsible for why it has been a Darwinian success, as Caleb put it. Uh, which brings me to my next point, which is that one of the most salient themes in the Ascent of Information is that the data ohm is actually another living entity, that it undergoes this Darwinian-like evolution, and that we humans exist in a symbiotic relationship with our data ohm. And I feel like this can be really hard for some people to comprehend. I mean, like, how exactly do we view our books as alive or our phones or our cars? So to help explain things, Caleb, you pose this thought experiment called the metal world, uh, which I really love because it's a very sci-fi kind of concept. Could you explain what the metal world is? <laughs> yeah, um, so the metal world is, it's a little sort of story almost, in, embedded in, in the book, it's like a thought experiment. And the thought experiment is imagine you are approaching the earth from space or you're hovering in, in space or in orbit around the earth as a innocent witness to what's going on on the surface. And you don't know about biology necessarily. So you take a look at what's happening and what the way I, I construct this little story is that what you see is all the, the actions and behaviors of the stuff that is not wet, warm biology. It's the metal world. So you observe lights coming on, you observe metal objects moving around on the surface of the planet, some following particular pathways laid down with collections of minerals that have been ground up and somehow deposited in strange strips on the surface of the planet. Um, you observe things moving in tunnels, you observe sort of swarms of metal boxes on rubber wheels <laughs> missing here and there, and so on and so on and so on. So it's taking all the stuff of the modern human world, the machinery, the technology, and imagining you could scrape away all of the biology and just see the behavior of that metal world. And the interesting thing about that is without stretching it too far, is it kind of looks like a living system. It has these swarm-like characteristics. There are responses to environmental changes. The sun comes up, the sun sets, weather changes and so on. Seasons alter the behavior of the metal world. There is energy flow, there's energy transport, there is repair, there is you know, reproduction. There are these buildings that churn out new things um, that go off into the world that are magically transported around. But then I point out that if you look really closely, you can see these other things, these strange little messy biological things <laughs> that are sort of helping the metal world along, right? They're sort of carrying things here and there or, or fixing things occasionally or even occupying spaces and so on. And so it points as well to this symbiosis. It's this idea of symbiosis. But yeah, I wrote it sort of for fun, but it's it's also, it was kind of shocking just how easy it was to, to describe our world in a way that doesn't incorporate biology explicitly, you know, and it sort of, a, a, I think it's a pointer to just the sheer scale of what many would call the technosphere. I would say, you know, the technosphere is part of the data ohm and the fact that it does have its own behaviors. The fact that those behaviors are mediated in many instances by us is almost by the by because that happens all the time in in biology <laughs> so that's the basic idea of metal world yeah yeah i love the metal world's concept it's first of all just really humbling and kind of gets us out of our narrow anthropocentric view um, not only are we living in or with a metal world, but we are also in the midst of a major transition, uh, a transcendence into a new state of being ushered by our data ohm and our technology. And you suggest that in the future, we may one day become subsumed by the data ohm, that humans might one day go the way of the mitochondria, a once freely living organism that is now engulfed to serve a larger organism. And 
I trembled slightly at this idea <laughs> because it made me think of the Borg from Star Trek, this collective of cybernetic beings bent on conquering the galaxy to assimilate new ideas into their hive mind. So for both of you, do you see the Borg as a possible result of our co-evolution with the data ohm? Are we heading towards a Borg-like state where our bodies are made machine and our minds are enslaved to serve the data ohm? I definitely think so. And the more, you know, as time goes on and the more I think about it, the more, again, as I said before, the more amazed I am at how forward-thinking the writers of Star Trek were when they invented the Borg, especially because, I mean, they first appeared... It would have been in the late 80s, I suppose, those episodes where they first appeared. I mean, incredible, incredible foresight. I mean, I think one of the things that struck me when I was reading about the metal world in the book is, is the possibility that it's not easy, but if we try and put ourselves in the place of some intelligent aliens and we really try hard to throw off all of our Earth and human-based prejudices in terms of culture and even biochemistry, if we try and sort of get rid of all of that, and we observe the earth, it might be tempting to think, oh, look at the metal world, that's the biosphere of the earth. And then there's this small perturbation, which is these organic wet systems. What's the function of them? Because they seem to be a fairly minor component of the overall system. So what's the purpose? And you might, again, and this was basically what Caleb wrote in the book, is, oh, well, it looks like the function of them is to provide a bit of creativity, a bit of you know, novelty generation. But that's it. They're not doing much else. Most functions are taken care of by the metal world. And um, out of all of the sort of dystopian predictions for our future, the Borg, they're so scary, but they're also, I think the reason they're so scary is because we all feel like it could come true. You know, when we, when we see these sort of cartoons of all of us like glued to our smartphones, um, and all of us sort of addicted to our digital devices um, and you sort of extrapolate that trend and think, oh yeah, wouldn't it be scary if we just ended up sort of you know, not interacting with the real world, we just sort of lie down and interface with the digital world, we sort of forget real interactions and, and forget non-digital communication. And, and so I think the Borg does epitomize, maybe not the end point, but a, but a significant sort of intermediate quasi-steady state where all of those trends of like maximizing information processing and communication push us into a Borg-like state. So um, the Borg are, are definitely representative of the endpoint of a set of evolutionary or transitional processes. And so I think it's the starkest warning even now, even though, you know, the concept is several decades old, it's, it's a warning that we should really consider carefully. Perhaps I can add a, a crazy idea. <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. So, you know, I was struck, as you said, Stuart, that the Borg was a creation, maybe in the late 1980s, by the, the writers for Star Trek, seems extraordinarily prescient at the time. It predated many of today's efforts to read brains, right, to, to have your neural link implanted, to increase your interface with the data ohm, with the externalized world of information. Then you kind of have to ask, so let's imagine the Borg in the Star Trek universe, you know, where did they come from? And here's the crazy, slightly chilling thought is the idea has to happen. I'm not sure that it just evolves out of data ohm. So what if <laughs> the data ohm, the external informational world, influenced the writers of Star Trek to write this story about a blending of machine and, and human or machine and, and life, a biological life that became more and more extreme. But by writing that story, that idea has now manifested itself in our consciousness. It has given us <laughs> our species ways of thinking about possible futures and actually sort of attracting us towards some of those futures. So it's almost like one of those time travel things where you go back and you give someone yeah. the idea that made the thing possible for you to travel yeah. back time in the first place. But, yeah. but in the context of the datum and this symbiosis, 
and the environment. I mean, you mentioned the idea of, you know, the environment, Stuart, you know, that we live in this environment that contains information. We're constantly interacting with it. And those interactions often will help give rise to novelty, give rise to new ideas because of the way we're constructed and the way we interact with the environment. So, you know, those episodes, those first episodes, <laughs> writing about the Borg yeah. may actually be part of the seed that yeah. points maybe to a future trajectory that is more like that because now the idea is there, the possibility has inserted itself perhaps out of the data home. And from the point of view of the data home, if, if you think of the data home as a, an entity with its own interests within this symbiosis, part of its own interests are to expand, to grow, to fill new niches like any living yeah. system. And how does it get that to happen? It has mm. to perhaps reach through to its symbiotic partner and, and tweak it. Now, I'm not suggesting the data home is thinking about this, but somehow, a complex concept like the Borg arises out of that symbiosis and actually then creates the opportunity for mm. such a thing to actually take place in the world. Yeah, My mind has just been blown. <laughs> 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 Sorry, Stuart, I interrupted no, you. Yeah, because we tend to think that, um, that a lot of these trends are kind of inevitable, but your point highlights the fact that they're not necessarily inevitable because the space of those possible trajectories for civilization is massive. And it's probably foolish for us to think that we have any kind of grip on that space of possibilities. And so, yeah, the idea in the writer's minds that created the Borg and, and also, you know, things like iPads are essentially invented by Star Trek or I don't know the exact history, but they were certainly there. Um, if that space of possible trajectories for us is huge, which it probably is, and if, you know, we're not systematically exploring that space, but there's a, a sort of dice roll in the sense that if someone comes up with a, uh, a highly attractive idea, then that trajectory gathers energy and, and focus from the uh, sort of human arbiters around it. That implies that I guess we should be more proactive in trying to map that space and making conscious active decisions as opposed to this sort of hands-off passive approach where it's like well you know the cat's out of the bag and it's it's going to do whatever it wants we're helpless to change it i think i mean the interesting thing about the borg is they're fascinating they're also terrifying right they're one of the best monster creations <laughs> possible because it is about the utter removal of things that we feel are important to us um, and control, right? And control. And that's always an interesting thing with any kind of future projection. You know, so much of our future projection in science fiction and, and so on. And I think Star Trek often walks this line really well is that, you know, we have this primal fear of a loss of control and technology feels sufficiently alien to us already if you combine that with you know alien technology then you've got you know the most horrifying stuff imaginable and technology that inserts itself into your mind into your body replaces chunks of you because you know they're just not efficient enough yeah you know, i can't imagine anything that feels more out of control in fact so maybe you know again coming back to my little thought experiment my crazy idea you know maybe by sort of having it in fiction we're sort of getting softened up right because we can mm. sit with it for a while and feel a little less terrified. Oh, it's just a story. As we're busy building the technology that could potentially enable some facets of it, mm -hmm. perhaps yeah. inspired by, right, inspired by that. So as you were speaking, it, it makes me wonder, you know, given that we're terrified of the Borg, why would we even unconsciously create the conditions where something like that might come to pass? And... Um, when people are separated from the collective, they have, you know, severe panic attacks, anxiety attacks and so forth, because suddenly these millions of voices in their heads have been silenced and they feel, they feel sort of lonely. And I think, you know, there's echoes of that in some mental health issues related to the internet and internet addiction in the sense that we can end up like building an online community and that can become our family and all of our sort of interactions can be 
mediated via the internet. And then if we find ourselves in a situation where our connection to the internet is lost, you know, we start panicking and because it's, it's sort of silent and um, we've lost our connection. That seems like more, more than a coincidence. <laughs> yeah. Facebook is the beginning of the assimilation. <laughs> Facebook is are the millions of voices that you can't do without. That is yeah. so true and so scary. Um, I want to return to this theme of control that Caleb brought up um, and losing control of our technology. So I'm reminded of the story of V'ger from Star Trek, the motion picture. And so in this story, basically there's a probe that was launched by NASA in the distant past as viewed by you know Kirk and company uh, named Voyager 6. And along the way, this probe got damaged as it explored the galaxy and then encountered a planet of living machines that reprogrammed it and gave it sentience and sent it along its way with instructions to return to its creator. But upon encountering Earth, it viewed all organic life as an infestation. So it sort of, you know, was looking for the metal world and it found, you know, oh, there's these organic things. I might as well wipe them out because they're no good. Um, and it just couldn't comprehend that its creators were actually humans. And so, you know, losing control of our technology to the point that it evolves into tech that is detrimental to human life is sort of this, this universal theme across Star Trek and the science fiction genre. And it has reoccurred as recently as Star Trek Discovery season two, where we had um, this malicious artificial intelligence that humans created, that the Federation created to sort of recommend tactical strategies. Uh, and then it ended up just taking over this uh, operation called Section 31. Uh, and even in Star Trek Picard, our heroes have to prevent an apocalyptic scenario where synthetic life threatens to wipe out all of organic life in the galaxy. So I'm just wondering, what does the concept of the data ohm shed and reveal about this just perpetual fear of humanity uh, <laughs> that our artificial life forms, that our artificial intelligences will usher a doomsday? It's a really interesting question. I mean, I think, you know, at some level, we just have this instinctive primal fear of the different, you know, we do this to ourselves, right? You look different than me. I'm, you know, so I'm terrified of you and I'm going to do bad things to you. So I think there's part of that. And, you know, the interesting thing about the idea of the data ohm, for me, coming up with that and thinking about it was actually kind of comforting because it took this thing that seems very alien and different and sort of uh, it's not really under control and, and doesn't necessarily bring it under control, but it creates familiarity. It makes it more natural. It's like, yeah, okay. So data ohm is part of being human. Earlier on, you mentioned transcendence and part of an argument I would make is that the popular idea of transcendence into some new form of life actually already started 200,000 years ago when you know, Homo sapiens speciated and, and other hominids were probably doing similar things, but they just, their genetic continuance hasn't been as robust. Started, you know, using language that had at least phonetic, symbolic representation, um, maybe carving things, drawing things on cave walls and so on. But we sort of lost sight a bit of that. So we now think about our oh, transcendence is in the future, or it's this crazy thing, but a kind of transcendence, I think, has happened and been happening over the last 200,000 years. And, and recognizing that feels a little more comfortable. It, may, it makes me a little less worried because it no longer feels quite so alien. It's like accepting what we are, that we aren't just biology and we never really have been. I mean, it's maybe a bit of a demanding thing for most people to, to get on board with. For me, at least, it actually makes life feel a little bit better, a little bit less scary because our machines and so on, they're not, they aren't separate from us at all. They're an integral part of us. They may be physically dissociated from us, but that's sort of irrelevant. It's another kind of, of living system that just isn't constructed the same way as us, but it's intimately part of us. So yeah, I, I feel comforted by the data um, more than terror. I mean, there are things to be concerned about the data and to do with energy use and to do with the sort of balance between these two symbiotic entities, us and the data ohm, and making sure, or maybe make, trying to make sure that doesn't sort of sway too far in one direction or the other. But, but overall, 
you know, the more you learn about yourself, I think the better things feel, which also seems like a theme in Star Trek, right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I feel like the, the great power of this book is to just get people to realize exactly what you said, that the data ohm is a part of us, is a part of our existence, and that by understanding it, we understand the ways in which it influences us and uh, also just getting to know what we are a little bit better. And I feel like, as you just said, in Star Trek, artificial life has often been used as a storytelling device that helps us reflect upon our human condition from an outsider's point of view. So episodes involving Lieutenant Commander Data from The Next Generation and the holographic doctor in Voyager are particularly poignant examples. And Sort of in a similar way, research into the fields of artificial life teaches us about our, our living condition. You know, um, Stuart, you are a member of the artificial life community. What do you think we stand to gain by trying to create synthetic life? Yeah, another nice, deep question. I mean, first and foremost, our objective is to try and understand the necessary and sufficient conditions for life, if such a set of conditions exist. So a minimal set of perhaps in physics terms, boundary conditions and initial conditions to permit the emergence of something that we would assign the, the word life. Yeah, it's interesting because the boundary can often be blurred. So for example, I don't do a lot of neural network modeling, but I'm pretty sure that those who do can develop an affinity for their models in the sense that their models are trying to solve problems or achieve various tasks. And you sort of observe them attempting to achieve those tasks and objectives. And I think it's, it doesn't take long before you can ascribe sort of personality traits to neural networks and AI systems. And so then the question is, well, if my brain is sort of partially convinced that this thing is living, what things doesn't it have that living systems do have? And I mean, in some cases, it may just be the embodiment and the sort of physical presence in the world. And of course, a lot of A-Life researchers, especially um, theoreticians and philosophers, are interested in this concept of uh, embodiment and inactivism and the relationship between a physical body, its interactions with the environment and the emergence of mind. And so, so people in that field would probably argue that you cannot separate them. So a neural network that's confined to a computer will never be alive. There has to be embodiment and interaction and environmental interaction for a truly sort of living dynamic to emerge. Yeah, so in that sense, this confluence between AI and A-life may, may be marching towards more definite constraints on the minimal and sufficient conditions for life to emerge. Uh, but of course, there's the, the other possibility that you could create some kind of super life. So we're very good at creating sub life, you know, these systems which show some features of life, but not all of them. But there's no reason why you might end up stumbling upon some form of life which is beyond your expectations. I mean, Wesley Crusher, you know, was experimenting with nanites in one of the episodes of Next Generation, and, and he accidentally I think he gave them some kind of like symbiotic ability so they could work collectively. And suddenly they started taking over the enterprise and eventually had to be given, given their own planet to live on. <laughs> um, so, you know, why, again, the, the, the foresight was incredible there on the part of the right. <laughs> Caleb, you wrote about an artificial life or a life meeting that you went to in Japan in the book. And in the book, you, you uh, describe the a life community as paddling furiously and generating waves of ideas that either crash spectacularly back on you or wend their way off to other fields of study. Um, <laughs> I'm just wondering, um, as an outsider to the artificial life community, uh, how do you see their efforts in trying to understand information and life and the data ohm? I feel like the A-Life community is an underappreciated community of science. <laughs> yeah. And part of the, the waves crashing and ideas wending the way off was what I learned in talking to people at this meeting. It was this fabulous meeting in, in Japan a few years ago. 
that I had not appreciated was so much of, for example, machine learning today actually had roots in earlier efforts in what would be called a life, um, artificial life, which, which had, encompasses a wide variety of scientific efforts, mathematical efforts, efforts in thought, experimentation, and, and so on. But somehow, A-Life, perhaps because of its ambition, <laughs> has never sort of formed a, a, a sort of solid, solid stationary object. It's, you know, people come up with ideas that then turn out to be incredibly useful for things like machine learning, how you train machines, you know, the algorithms that you use to, to get your neural nets to converge on a sort of stable state and so on. Um, for me, that was really interesting to see that. And I think, you know, so this underappreciated community, but also the sheer scale of the challenge that it is in principle facing, which is, as Stuart was talking about, you know, this idea of making life somehow, or even, I mean, for me, actually, the, you know, the question that I really came away with from that meeting was, in a sense, the same question I had at the beginning, which was, is life something that can be built in different ways? Right. All we know is life built out of carbon chemistry. And we understand that that may be because carbon chemistry just has, has unique qualities in this universe. You know, that it just enables the most extraordinary complexity of structures and uh, chemical processes and networks to, to emerge in our universe. And it's just because in this particular universe, the way the carbon atom is <laughs> gives rise to all of that. But you know, we have this sense, you know, surely you could do that in software, for example. <laughs> mm. And the interesting thing is that that has not yet really been accomplished. Although I've, I've spoken to people who have pushed back on that and told me, no, no, we've actually, you know, this was done. You know, mm-hmm. I'm very skeptical. <laughs> <laughs> I won't mention names, but quite famous computer scientists. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, maybe made too much money at some point, and so <laughs> I did everything was a success, and and so on. But you know, yeah. So the you know when I was certainly when I was talking about the data ohm and this idea of metal world, you know, in the back of my mind was okay. I'm sort of saying it's like an, an alternate living system here on Earth. That is, you know, my appreciation for what an extreme leap that really is was was greatly enhanced by interacting with members of the A-Life community and, and seeing the discussions going on there and the extraordinary diversity of ideas and the fact that it's so hard to converge on some sort of underlying, and maybe Stuart will tell me I'm wrong, but on yeah. some underlying set of principles. And that alone must be telling us something, but mm. I'm not quite sure what it is. It's a fabulous mystery. It really yeah. is. There have been attempts by such talented individuals. So autopoiesis is one example. The Maturana and Varela introduced this sort of trichotomy of container metabolism and information system as being a sort of the minimal sufficient conditions for a living system. And decades of A-Life research to recapitulate that both experimentally and in simulations have not succeeded in recreating life. And I would say another another strength of the A-Life community or a great achievement of the A-Life community is taking pretty much most of the major theories within biology and rigorously testing them in primarily digital environments to a certain extent, experimental environments. And yeah, basically seeing whether those theories stand up to, to the test, to see whether those theories really explain or predict the things that they're supposed to and um, you know one of the one of the biggest bodies of such digital experimentation is artificial evolution experiments things like tierra and evida where the individuals are sections of computer code and they have to compete for cpu time and memory and you have a darwinian process taking them from one generation to the next and after 20 plus years of of work this issue of open-ended evolution where the complexity of the system grows without bound is still an open question. So those simulations do show evolution towards some optimal configuration. And normally that involves a degree of sort of collective self-reproduction and a degree of parasitism. 
but so far it doesn't seem easy to create the conditions in which that system self-complexifies perpetually. And so the question is, you know, is that system too limited? Are the degrees of freedom too limited to allow that that sort of open-ended complexity, or is it, or is it something else that that, that we're missing? I think, as you said, the community is underappreciated. It's it's interesting that the lack of condensation to like a well-defined set of techniques and standards might actually be a strength of the A-Live community because it's always such an open sort of philosophical atmosphere. And I absolutely love that that atmosphere. And so I wonder whether it's probably good that it's uh, shielded from strong disciplinary sort of conventions. <laughs> it, it feels like if you could take the A-Live community today and place it in the future in the Star Trek universe, it would do really well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Mesh yeah. well with that that exploration of, of unknowns, but also the, the acceptance of you know, extraordinary ideas and the interest and genuine interest in you know, finding answers without the pressure of you know, success in the, way <laughs> in the 21st century. Yeah, when there's no money in the Federation, there are no grant proposals probably. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. That's probably yeah. not true. I remember there was one grant proposal in... Uh, Star Trek II, The the Wrath of Khan, where Carol Marcus had to deliver um, uh, a video proposal to the Federation to get some kind of resources for her Genesis project. But, you know, yeah, I, I, I agree with the sentiment. Don't, that, don't uh, spoil it. Don't spoil it. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and it seems like a lot of these pursuits in artificial life are still ongoing in Star Trek. I mean, in, in Star Trek, we see data, we see the EMH, but I feel like there's still no real understanding of why they are able to exist. And we there's this episode that I keep coming back to on this podcast where, you know, uh, Bruce Maddox, who's a, a scientist um, in the Federation, wants to disassemble data to understand how data works. And, um, you know, that I feel like a lot of those questions about what exactly is life and how do we make life from scratch are still open questions in the Star Trek universe. So I just have three last questions for you. One scientific question and then two wrap-up questions. So the last scientific question that I have is in this book, in, in this discussion that we've had today, we've seen that information and life are just so inextricably intertwined. And at the end of the book, Caleb, you make the case that data ohms are probably inevitable in the universe. And with that understanding, how does that change our strategies for trying to do the Star Trek thing of seeking out new life and new civilizations? It's a great question. And I feel like I've only just started to really think about that. I mean, it's one thing to say that there's a feeling of inevitability about this process. You know, it's an evolutionary trajectory much like the oxygenation of Earth's atmosphere that while not inevitable feels like any life that stumbles onto that is going to hold on to that it's going to be carried along by that and so the data ohm this externalization this mass externalization of information not encoded in genes or whatever biological otherwise informational system we have as living organisms that that's going to happen but when it relates to looking for life out there in the universe, so today in modern astronomy and astrophysics and astrobiology, we talk about looking for biosignatures, for example, the chemical alterations to a planet's atmosphere and oceans and surface environment because of the presence of life. Uh, we also talk about looking for technosignatures. Technosignatures are kind of the, the new way of talking about SETI, search for extraterrestrial intelligence. Technosignatures is, is somewhat more general because it incorporates the idea of looking for structured radio signals or, or laser pulses, um, but also the idea of looking for restructuring of matter in the universe by intelligence, by technology, and so on. And for me, what that says is with biosignatures, we're looking for outcomes of genomes or something equivalent to that. With technosignatures, we're looking for outcomes of data ohms or something equivalent to that. And I think that may be a useful way to start to think about, you know, because we don't know exactly what technosignatures there might be out there. I mean, I say restructuring of matter. That's pretty general. <laughs> you know, you know, what would that look like? But if we start to think about 
you know, what gives rise to that restructuring matter, and I would argue that a data ohm is likely to be a part of that, maybe that can give us some clues because it means that there's always going to be, a, in my picture of things, a dynamic between the biological side and the and the data side, the externalized information side, which is at play on a planet. On Earth, it's at play in planetary sustainability, the changes happening to the planet, in part due to the existence of this data ohm and so on. Maybe somewhere in, in there, we can find pointers towards technosignatures we hadn't imagined before, or just sort of general principles behind things like technosignatures. So I'm actually now starting to try to do some research on that. I'm thinking about the relationship of the amount of restructuring of matter that takes place and the energy flow that's involved in that and trying to see if there are any principles at play that extend from what we already know about certain principles for terrestrial biology and even technology um, that seem to sort of match up quite closely. Um, there's already been beautiful work on some elements of this by people like Jeffrey West, the physicist at the Santa Fe Institute, looking at the, the relationship between body mass and metabolism and resting energy use and extending that really into things like cities on earth and other you know, seemingly artificial systems. So yeah, so that's a long-winded answer to say, I think data ohms are likely to happen in more than one place in the universe and they may actually be a way to start to disentangle um, signs of technology, signs of intelligence out there in the universe. Mm. Sounds amazing. Yeah, I can't wait to find mm. out what you find out. Um, if I could encapsulate what you just said in just a few words, I, I feel like you're seeking the underlying laws that govern a data ohm and using those then to try to predict what other data ohms might show us in, in, in terms of what we can find in our searches or characterizations of other worlds to try to identify them. Exactly. And it parallels what we do with biosignatures mm -hmm. and we take what we understand of metabolism and the molecular basis of life, what that tends to produce, what kind of compounds tend to be used, and we convert that into predictions for chemistry and, for example, planetary atmosphere, totally paralleling what I'm suggesting with the data. Ohm. That's awesome. Stuart, do you have any final thoughts on how the concept of the data ohm can influence our search for life out there? Definitely. I love all the ideas that Caleb just raised there, and I think it is a very promising direction, primarily because it abstracts away from the specific features of life that we're familiar with. And abstracting away from those features is something that, um, that we in astrobiology and A-Life think about a lot. And if we think about the data, um, what are the driving forces that are pushing the data ohm to do whatever it's doing. And of course, we don't really know the answer, but given that it clearly likes to absorb more information and it likes to expand and it likes to sort of entrain more free energy into its existence, it seems like seeking out novelty is, is kind of a driving force. And that is the driving force for the crew of the, or the various crews in Star Trek. You know, we hear that, we heard that from the original series, Next Generation, Voyager, their objective is not to get rich or, you know, acquire things in the same way that some consumerist culture of today pushes us towards. Their driving force is to seek out new life and new civilizations. And so, again, the characters of Star Trek are kind of recapitulating what I think is probably a driving force underlying the data home, which is uncovering novelty. And of course, when you uncover novelty, when you discover new things, you will probably encode that new information. And if it's new, then it has low compressibility. Otherwise, it would be sort of existing knowledge. And so in my mind, there's a framework for seeking out life or seeking out data ohms related to trying to measure like the compressibility of signals that we, that we receive from distant worlds. The approach that I've been pursuing in my research is related to complexity and measuring complexity of distant systems, which is not the same as, but it's related to compressibility. So um, yeah, I'm definitely on board with these new approaches where we're, we're measuring some information related content of distant worlds um, as a proxy for, as Caleb said, the restructuring or the, the sort of re-engineering of, of the matter and energy flows in those systems. 
That's awesome. It sounds like I need to have you back on Strange New Worlds again to talk about some of that research, Stuart. <laughs> Thank you both for right. such uh, an exciting discussion today. I have just two quick wrap-up questions. The first of which is, where can people follow you on the internet? Because it's evident um, by now, hopefully, that you're both brilliant people with great ideas. <laughs> and so if our listeners want to continue to absorb your great ideas, how can they do so? Uh, well, Google Scholar, I guess, is <laughs> I, should, I should update my website more frequently. But um, my Google Scholar page is always kept up to date with all of my uh, papers and, and so forth. And I guess I appear on Google Scholar as well, but I also have a Twitter account, so people can look for me on Twitter. It's Caleb underscore Scharf, my name for Twitter. That's my Twitter handle, and I try to post interesting things. Sometimes it's a post from a disgruntled academic trying to get through this, <laughs> but, but I try to point to interesting things there. I also write quite frequently both for Scientific American and Nautilus, and those articles are out there for, for people to look at. Sounds like we need to assimilate Stuart into the Twitter collective. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> resistance. Is it resistance futile or not? I'm not sure. Uh, all right. Um, last question for both of you. This is something that I've been asking all of my guests in 2021 because we've just gone through a past you know, year and a half that was pretty horrendous and pretty stressful for a lot of people given everything that's been going on in the world. So to end on a positive note, I just want to know what is one thing that gives you hope for the future? It could be related to Star Trek or your research or both or neither. Just one thing in your life that gives you hope for the future. Well, I'll stick with the theme and, and say it's humans have extraordinary creativity and it just keeps coming out of them. They can't help it. And even when people are locked down, they're being creative. Look at how creative people have been in order to get themselves through these these last few months uh that gives me the greatest hope of all our novelty production is is really a miracle mm, exactly i mean especially the young minds from the classes that we have both caltech students and high school students and community college students that we interact with because pandemics and climate change can keep you awake at night and um our resilience will only come from as Caleb said, the creativity and the um, and the the motivations of these kinds of amazing knowledgeable students, and so that's definitely you know when I start panicking, I, I just remind myself that there are lots of talented, well-meaning people out there who are trying to change things for the better, and that's definitely our greatest asset for sure. What a wonderful place to end. Thank you both for joining me on Strange New Worlds and live long and prosper. That was Dr. Caleb Scharf and Dr. Stuart Bartlett on the ascent of information. How we are our information and how our information is us. I think of all the fascinating ideas that we whipped around in the past hour, my favorite was Caleb's realization that the data-ohm can feed back on its own evolutionary trajectory in an almost prophetically self-fulfilling way. The stuff that we dream up in science fiction is a part of our data-ohm, and those stories go on to influence the co-evolution of the data-ohm and the biome with which it is intertwined. When we dream up something like the Borg, we are not just inventing a fantasy decoupled from our own human existence. We may in fact be altering the probabilities of future events, helping to nudge our trajectory towards or away from certain outcomes. That's the power of science combined with storytelling. And to me, this highlights the importance of two often underappreciated human activities. One, basic research, the generation of new information about our world. And two, journalism, the communication of good information to the public. You know, there was so much I wanted to talk about with Caleb and Stuart that I just couldn't fit into this episode. So if you enjoyed the themes that we talked about today, please do check out Caleb's book, 
to read about things like the burden of an idea, how our ever-increasing information processing is making an ever-increasing demand on our energy. And also the health of information, how the dark flip side of information is falsehoods and lies. But for me, the biggest takeaway from the ascent of information is that by understanding what the data ohm is, and that it can be framed as a living entity that we interact with, we can try to understand its goals, how its goals are aligned with our well-being in some cases, and how its goals may be detrimental to us in others. And with that perspective, we gain access to the power, or, or maybe I should say the potential, to change our co-evolution with the data ohm for the better. Okay, let's end with a small programming note. This fall, I am settling into a new research position at Carnegie's Earth and Planets Laboratory. As such, I am taking a short break from producing new episodes of Strange New Worlds. I don't know how long this break will last, but I am 100% sure that I will be back. After all, how could I miss the chance to create a Strange New Worlds episode about Star Trek Strange New Worlds? So until you hear from me again, stay safe, follow your curiosity, your enthusiasm, and enjoy the rest of Star Trek Lower Decks, and then the premiere of Prodigy, and then Disco Season 4. It's a wonderful time to be a fan of science and Star Trek. See you out there. That was wonderful. Thank you so much. Oh, no, thank you. I mean, I really enjoyed this. Both of you are great to chat with. I, I, I kept having to remind myself this is being recorded and you're going to use it. For <laughs>